today on Ag News Daily. The more detailed information that they have as far as their production, their sales, um, those types of things to really help us analyze uh, what the actual results were for 2019. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Mike Pearson here, co-host of the Ag News Daily Podcast, joined as always by Ms. Delaney Howell. Delaney, how you doing today? I am doing pretty good, Mike. It w- I tell you what, it was sunny, and now they're starting to have some clouds roll in across central Iowa. I thought it was going to be a nice sunny day for harvest, but now I'm not so sure. Well, I'll tell you what, I was on Twitter, and of course I'm in Chicago, so I don't get a chance to see this in person, but the National Weather Service out of Des Moines said they are getting pea-sized hail at their mm-hmm. office in Johnston earlier today, and that's going to move through uh, northern Paul County, so you might get a little bit of hail. Fantastic. Just what I wanted today. Right, right. And that's great news for uh, all the crops still standing in the field. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I was also on Twitter yesterday, Mike, talking to producers about how much rain they've gotten. I thought this was really interesting. I tweeted out, you know, just wanted to know how people were doing, checking in, how's harvest going for folks. And in southeastern Kansas, around the Pittsburgh area, for those of you that know Kansas well, there has been just what the man on Twitter I've been talking to has called a black swan event for rain in that area. They've had about 43 inches since January and our good friend Ed Valley, of course, tuned in to share that 2019, we haven't seen as much rain for that part of Kansas really ever. And the closest year by average was 1985 when they received 66 inches of rain for that year wow so i mean they're they're two-thirds of the way there right and and that's a very dry part of kansas so they're not used to having this rain they don't know really how to adapt to it what to do with it that kind of a thing so but that was pretty interesting yeah that would be really frustrating to be down there i know those uh growers in that part of the world are still trying to get their uh, winter wheat crop seeded Mm -hmm. and you can't do it if the field is flooded no you cannot Well, we've got a little bit of news from the USDA earlier today. We had a flash sale of soybeans. So more good news here, getting soybeans moved off the coast. We sold 128,000 tons of beans in the 1920 marketing year to unknown destinations. Mm -hmm. Assumptions being probably China, but, uh, you know, we don't know for sure. We do not know for sure, but yes, assumption is China. Yeah, ordinarily, as our listeners are probably aware, that's typically what we see with these unknown purchases. They they get re-known or get discovered. I don't know what our phraseology is. A little bit later on, yeah, they're typically always going to China. Hmm. All right. Well, I don't have any Chinese-related news, but I do have some trade news. We are continuing to see USMCA receive a ton of pushback out in Washington D.C. and. Senator Chuck Grassley, who is the Senate Finance Committee chairman, has told reporters that he wasn't really concerned about getting USMCA passed, but after, I don't know that there was necessarily a recent turn of events, but just as we continue to get later and later into the few, into the year, he said he's worried that it's not going to get passed at all until after the 2020 election year. He said the clock is running out. He is going to start putting some pressure on Democrats in the House to move quickly. And until now, he hasn't been inclined to be worried, but now he is. 
I don't blame him. Now is the time to start getting concerned. We've got Mexico and Canada both ready to ink that deal. We're just kind of waiting on the uh, Congress here in this country to give their official blessing. Yes, we are, Mike. But at least we haven't seen the nuclear option that we talked about several months ago where President Trump just decides to pull us out of NAFTA. So mm -hmm. all things considered, we're at least uh, we're not moving backwards. But we're not really moving forwards either. We are not. We're in the political doldrums. Yes, we are. Well, we've got some news as long as we're talking D.C. stuff. We've got a report by Politico about EPA Administrator Andrew Wheeler. And uh, this is going back to Monday, but uh, talking about his comments about the EPA uh, RVO blending rule that they have uh, tried to issue to smooth over relations with biofuel groups. And uh, Andrew Wheeler says, quote, I think a lot of people who had a knee-jerk reaction to the rule, just it wasn't exactly what they were expecting. If they look at it and read it carefully, they will see it will get us to the 15 billion gallons of ethanol that the president promised, and that's in the statute, end quote. So it kind of comes back to even we need to see the full numbers. Lainey, I know you talked about this uh, earlier on when uh, President uh, Trump was meeting with Secretary Purdue, and they were talking about how farmers just need to see it in action. That's where we're at. We need these numbers to come out so we can get a real understanding of exactly what's going on here with uh, renewable fuels. Yes, we do, Mike. And since you opened the door there to what's going on in Washington, D.C., I actually have quite a bit of news related today to climate change efforts. The first story being here that the USDA's Inspector General, Phyllis Fong, will be looking into whether the department has purposely chosen not to publicize its climate change research and whether or not they have impacted, I suppose, climate change research and whether the relocation of the ERS will continue to impact that climate change research in a negative way. Um, because as we've talked about a little bit on the podcast before, the USDA had some climate change research that they didn't choose to publish. And so now it looks like we are going to see that probed a little bit further. But I want to follow up with that with an interesting piece of news that I'm going to share this week in our newsletter that I think, I don't know if it'll be a bargaining tool or a tool that people use to discuss climate change and global warming or not, but there has been a new publish, published study that came out in the Nature Communications on Tuesday, which is a magazine or a journal published by the UK, and they have been studying organic farming in particular because the general rule of thumb, Mike, has been if we use organic practices like what our forefathers and ancestors did, we should be able to potentially reverse some of the global warming effects. Is that generally the, the sense consensus there, you think, with that? Yeah, I would say in the publicly accepted or, or kind of the way people think about, quote, organic, mm -hmm. uh, I think that's definitely where their head's at. Okay. Well, this new study that has been published as of Tuesday is saying that that's not really necessarily the case. They have seen a big shift in greenhouse gas emissions, and, that, and they're trying to challenge that narrative, basically, by predicting that shifting largely to organic farming instead of the farming practices we do now could increase net greenhouse gas emissions by as much as 21 percent 
And they did take that study a step further to also just look at food production in general, because we know that 2050, 10 billion population, we've got to continue to figure out resourceful ways to feed that population. And they said, if we were to largely switch over to organic farming and organic produce and all that stuff, which consumers often think, oh, that's healthier for me and better for the environment, etc., we would see a drop in food production by 40%. Yes, I saw that headline, and just that, that number just leapt out at me. A 40% drop in production would be catastrophic for, uh, for much of the developing world who uh, you know, relies on, on cheap food. Yeah, there would be no way that we would be able to feed that growing population. So I don't know. I think it'll be interesting to see how the uh, more mainstream folks that believe in that type of stuff, organic farming, etc., react to this recent study. Yes, it will. We'll keep an eye on it for sure because... I organic, whatever, these niche markets in agriculture aren't going anywhere. Mm -hmm. uh, we do have a very bifurcated population. We've got people that need to buy the cheapest food they can afford, but we've also got people who can afford to spend a growing share of their income on food, and they're going to spend it in ways they feel justifies their worldview, and uh, that means buying specialty crops and, and stuff at a niche market, which can be a great, great market for uh, some producers. It absolutely can. It just appears that being a widespread market is not a good fit for it. Right. Yeah. Not going to be ideal for the globe. No, it is not. Well, you know, you talk about growing population and uh, we've got some good news for a sector of agriculture that absolutely needs it. And that is the dairy industry. A dairy analyst from Robo AgriFinance, a guy by the name of Ben Lane, had a conversation with Brownfield earlier this week, and he said he's optimistic about the dairy outlook for the fourth quarter of 2019, so the, the quarter we're in now, and the start of 2020. We've seen this rally just this week alone in, uh, in some of the deferred months in the dairy contracts. And he says we're seeing some things that are stopping people from growing their herds around the world. And that constraint is going to help prices going forward into the first half of the year. And unfortunately, even though a lot of farms would like to expand, the fact that we have spent the past five years below break even means that financially they just can't afford to. And so uh, this is one of those things that's, that's going to help kind of put a lid on milk production, which is really done, you know, the low price, the overproduction of milk is what has driven the price down so much. So now it seems like that's going to stop. That's what I'm trying to say. Yeah. And he also said demand for cheese is improving. Right. I think Naomi confirmed that for us on Monday as well and has been part of the reason that uh, dairy prices have been supported at these levels. Absolutely. Keep eating that cheese, ladies and gentlemen. Get a pizza and get extra cheese on it. I usually do, actually. That's the one thing I'll cave on is some extra cheese. Absolutely. you got to have extra cheese to go with all the meats. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm, definitely. Well, Delaney, what other news do you have for, uh, for this day in agriculture? Well, you know, I'm actually going to take it back just one more time to climate change because we saw another big company announce plans to invest in attempting to address climate change, and that is seeding chemical giant Syngenta has announced as of yesterday that they are planning to pair up with the Nature Conservancy and invest about $2 billion towards new technologies to help farmers deal with climate change and reduce greenhouse gas emissions. They didn't, their CEO didn't give any explanation as to what that technology 
may be and how they will deal with it with that $2 billion investment. But he did voice concern that he is afraid that some of their leading competitors will stifle innovation in the biotech crop traits and may not allow some of the things that they try to put onto the pipeline for producers that those things might not get passed because of competition and that their competitors may try to stifle some of that innovation. Interesting. You know, wouldn't be surprised. Uh, that's, that's what the companies do. You know, they try to find ways to, to limit their competition. Absolutely. Hmm. Well, we'll just have to keep an eye on it and see exactly what new technologies or products come out of that investment and uh, how exactly they're, they're going to work to address uh, uh, climate change and sustainability. Yes, but I mean, I don't know. I think it's interesting because agriculture does have the really probably biggest opportunity to change climate change. Oh, for sure. I was having a conversation with fellow podcaster Mitchell Hora about mm-hmm. that earlier this week. Just the uh, the whole notion, and, and we've had Indigo Ag on the podcast talking about their their carbon um, sequestration program and the carbon market they've started. And that's the thing, agriculture. We control a lot of ground that we can put a lot of carbon into, and let's get paid for it. Absolutely. Somehow. Yeah, right. Well, I tell you what, speaking of getting paid, Delaney, do you have any other news, or should we jump to the markets and see who, if anybody, is getting paid Mm, today? I think we should. All right, folks. Well, as we take a look at the corn market, the December contract was down a quarter penny at 387 and three quarters. March also finished down a quarter to close at 399 and three quarters. In soybeans, the November contract also off a quarter of a penny, finished the day at 933 and three quarters. The January contract was unchanged on the day at 948 and a quarter. Looking at Chicago wheat, December was up two and three quarters. Wheat finished at 520 and three quarters. The March contract also up one and three quarters to close the day at 526 even. The big gainers on the day were in the livestock industry. Looking at live cattle, the December contract closed up $1.55 above its summertime resistance in the uh, upper 114 region to finish the day at 115.25. The February contract was up $1.3250 to close at 120.42.50. In feeder cattle, November was up $1.25 to finish at 144.75. January, up $1.40, finished at 141.20. And in lean hogs, mixed trade today as bull spreading continued. The December contract was up 32.5 cents at 65.82.50. February, down $1.17.5 to close the day at 75. We talked about some of the upbeat news in the dairy industry, but it was not reflected in today's futures markets. Class 3 milk for October was unchanged on the day at 1865. November contract down 10 cents to close at $19 even. Delaney, why don't you tell us who we're talking to for the interview portion of our show today? Well, Mike, I think it's not, I'm not excited. I shouldn't say I'm excited to talk about this topic, but I think it's one that our listeners will hold a lot of value in. We're talking with Kylie Todd today of United Bank of Iowa about what to do and what to prepare ahead of those renewal appointment conversations coming up with your banker. Well, ahead of those much anticipated renewal appointments that you may be have scheduled already with your bankers, we've got Kylie Todd, who is the Chief Loan Officer for the United Bank of Iowa on today to discuss what you should be preparing for. Kylie, thanks so much for joining today. Great, Delaney. Thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to it. So, Kylie, let's get right to it. A lot of folks 
that's that's maybe not their favorite time of year is preparing for that upcoming meeting when maybe you need to ask for more loan or more capital to operate with. What should folks be thinking about as they're preparing for those meetings? Sure, Delaney. It is much like uh, that annual doctor's appointment or physical. You know, nobody really uh, looks forward to those either, but it is a necessary thing, and and uh, it is kind of a financial checkup that we that we look forward to kind of not only assess last year's results, you know, how close did we come to last year uh, as far as our projection that we did and cash flows and those types of things a year ago, um, but as far as preparing, you know, the first thing is just accurate information, Delaney. The more the more detailed information that they have as far as their production, their sales, um, any pre-sales that they had, um, those types of things to really help us analyze uh, what the actual results were for 2019. Um, and then as far as, you know, what their goals and, and uh, plans are for 2020, and then we can start developing that plan for next year and, and analyze what what credit need they do have and uh, best structure for that is, as well. And uh, if they're adding acres, uh, maybe a farm was sold and they lost some acres or something along those lines. And just, just really trying to understand exactly what's changing in that operation from last year to, to next year. Kylie, I also want to ask, what about those folks that are maybe new to farming or are just getting into it? Maybe they're a, a son or a daughter returning back to the family farm. What should those maybe first or second year loan folks be doing ahead of that type of meeting? Sure. You know, it's going to be a lot of the same thing. Um, for them, it's, you know, the, a lot of times we'll end up doing a cash flow for the upcoming year, and that's really a budget, you know, to try to understand kind of what a, a projected income stream is as, as long as, as, and as well, the uh, expense side of that. So, those folks maybe need to make a few more phone calls to their suppliers as far as their seed dealers or their fertilizer suppliers and those types of things to get a better feel for what that need is going to be next year. I know a lot of times our, our younger farmers maybe aren't as experienced in those conversations or, or haven't um, visited with those folks as recently to, to kind of know what the trends are going there and, and if there's any fluctuations in fertilizer or seed costs or any of the other inputs that uh, we're going to need to kind of project what the credit needs are for the coming year. What uh, tips and tricks do you have for folks that are looking to continue that relationship with their banker, maybe haven't had a great relationship in the past? How can they make that relationship better for both parties? You know, it really comes down to delaying communication. You know, the the better communication we have with the customer throughout the year, um, no surprises, those types of things, understanding the producer's goals, you know, short-term, long-term goals, maybe it's buying land, maybe it's entering retirement, whatever it happens to be, the the better we have an understanding of what their goals are, uh, the better... Uh, prepared we are as lenders to uh, help them achieve those goals or the family's goals or whatever that happens to be. And then just communication throughout the year. I know a lot of times we end up as a bank doing some mid-year projections with folks, um, you know, try to get out there late summer, early harvest when we have a little better feel for what the actual expenses have been as far as crop inputs and have a little bit of a feel for what the um, what the um, yield potential is out there and get a quick update, you know, and and then we can kind of go from there and, and uh, talk about some of those things. And, you know, this year was a challenging year. We had areas that had excess moisture. We had areas that had flooding. 
we had uh, thistle caterpillars that required spraying that weren't anticipated. Um, so the, the quicker we can understand those issues and, and uh, realize what impact they may have had, just the, the better it's going to be as far as planning for next year and, and long-term relationship with our customers. Well, absolutely. I mean, this year you look at it, we had all of those factors. We had a, a crazy growing season. We're now starting to harvest, and that's even been getting quite a bit of rain here across the uh, central Midwest. How do you, as a banker, work with folks now when we've had four, five, six years of, of maybe tougher times in agriculture, and then this year you get thrown in there, which is abnormal, of course, as well. How do you work with folks during those tougher stretches? Sure. It's, you know, again, it comes back to the communication, and and we've got several customers that um, have done very well the last few years, even with tighter margins, because they were positioned well. Um, There's folks that had uh, excess liquidity kind of coming out of that 2012-2013 time frame that they've been able to kind of soften the blow, I guess, if you will, of these tighter margins. And then there's some other folks that, you know, uh, have depleted some working capital reserves or some cash reserves, and and, uh, we're working with those folks to try to figure out – possible changes that they can do in their operation, whether it's finding additional revenue sources, maybe it's a restructure of their balance sheet to give them some cash flow relief, some of those types of things. So, you know, we've been trying to have those conversations here over the last couple of years because we've been in a, in a thinner margin environment for a little while here, and it, it doesn't appear like it's, it's uh, changed dramatically. Um, I know some parts of the state maybe have a little bit uh, more of a challenge yield-wise than, than we're fortunate to have here and kind of around the, the west central, the northwest Iowa area where, where we primarily have our, our uh, footprint, if you will. But um, it's just a matter of, again, having, having those communication along, along the way to, to point out the, the trends that are going on and try to make small changes along the way to uh, kind of change those, those trends or improve those trends um, before they become a, a serious problem. Absolutely. Kylie, one of the things that we talk about a lot on the podcast is, of course, marketing your commodities, but having a marketing plan in place as a banker, how important is that to you or what weight does that hold when a farmer brings in a marketing plan or doesn't bring in a marketing plan? Sure. You know, we see a wide array of marketing plans, Delaney. You know, some are some are uh, seasoned, very seasoned professionals at it, and it's kind of a, a gut feel and those types of things. Um, and maybe they have an equity position or liquidity position that affords them to take quite a bit of that risk themselves. There's other folks, you know, that maybe have large operations that are that are running on a tighter margin, and they really do need to have that that solid marketing plan. And where that marketing plan really starts, Delaney, and what we try to focus on, you know, we're not we're not marketing experts. And I don't think there's very many bankers that would tell you they are. But um, what we try to focus on is is really helping them understand what their cost of production is, um, because that's that's uh, in my mind the first step into a marketing plan. Um, if you know what your cost of production is, or can get pretty close to what your cost of production is, then you know if that sale you're making or that target you have out there is at a profitable level or not. And um, it's not it's not the exact same for everybody. You know, some people's cost it, it can vary depending on land costs, um, machinery payments, those types of things. It can vary quite a bit. So, you know, the the more they can do with their banker to understand what their true true cost of production is with an average type of yield. Um, the, the better footprint or better foundation they have to develop that marketing plan. 
Kylie, I've also got to ask, since we've got you on the podcast today, we read all these stories about banks going under or banks having issues with, you know, passing out huge loans. I just read an article earlier this week um, about a bank that had given out a $12 million loan to one producer. How does that happen where a bank gives out so much capital and then you know, doesn't get it paid back. I mean, we just read about so many stories like that across agriculture, these huge operations with so much operating capital that go under. As a banker, how does that, how, how do you end up in that situation? You know, Delaney, those are those are challenging. And, and agriculture is more expensive today. You know, we've got um, larger farms requiring uh, larger, larger needs to put that crop in, larger equipment to take the crop out. Um, that operating cycle has got extended. You know, a lot of people are using marketing plans and, and deferring grain sales out in the following months. Um, and, and sometimes, you know, there's one, one and a half, two, plus years worth of operating credit kind of out there at one time. So, so those numbers have gotten larger over the time, you know, for a variety of reasons that we just talked about there, but, um, you know, that, that comes back to communication. I know there's some talk and I've seen the articles too, that, uh, there's bankers that are, that are doing more inventory checks and doing, doing more collateral analysis and those types of things. And that's part of it, you know, as these operations get larger and, and there's more operating capital out there, banks need to do some of those things to just ensure that the assets are there that, uh, that they think. And it comes back again, Delaney to the communication piece and the trust piece. And, and we just try to develop those relationships and, and, uh, have that piece along the way. And, and um, just make sure that that operating cycle and the and the borrowings they have for that operating cycle makes sense. Definitely. You've got to look at the balance sheet at the end of the day and see what maybe makes sense. It maybe doesn't make sense to buy a new piece of equipment that year or expand the operation. But uh, I guess that leads to my last question, Kylie. As you look across the health, I know United Bank of Iowa is a pretty big ag lender across the state of Iowa. As you look across the state in particular, we keep hearing reports from different federal reserves and the the beige book report and whatnot just looking at the overall health of the general economy and also the agricultural economy what do you guys see as trends across the state you know we've seen that obviously different sectors of of the of agriculture have their own challenges going on right now whether it be dairy whether it be uh the cattle producer hog producer whatever it happens to be um i you know i would i would say that um we're probably in a little bit more of a normal to a slightly challenged economy obviously we we've come out of I know some have called the super cycle of the 2008-2013 time frame, and and uh, we've kind of gotten back to thin margins. You know, agriculture is a is a um, seasoned or a a mature um, economy. So typically, in those types of types of businesses, margins are thinner, and and the good producers have found a way to to um, um, you know still produce the good crop and still you know create the create the supply and on the other side of that we've got the challenge of of demand and and things for our products and we've got a lot of things going politically and and worldwide that have created additional challenges for us but long term i still you know people are still going to eat people are still going to need our commodity 
and uh, it's just a matter of, of managing through that, understanding what your costs are, and uh, might not be able to have have huge returns here for a while, but uh, it's just a matter of, of surviving through through the leaner times and and uh, be in a position to thrive again when things get just a touch better and and we're able to realize those profits again. And hopefully that's uh, around the corner here for agriculture. But Kylie, thanks so much for sharing about what to think about ahead of those upcoming conversations. Very good. Thanks for having me, Delaney. Well, a big thank you again to Kylie. Mike, I tell you what, this is not a fun subject necessarily to talk about, but I think it's definitely one that holds a lot of weight in producers' operations. You know, I think you're exactly right, Delaney. And when we're dealing with tough times and tight margins, the the more upfront you can be and open with your banker and your lender to let them know where things sit on your operation, the more smoothly that process is going to go. Absolutely, Mike. Absolutely. Well, speaking of smooth, it is always smooth to listen to the Ag News Daily podcast. You can do it by visiting our website at agnewsdaily.com. We've got all of our past episodes there. You can also click around on the website and discover podcasts from other folks, other voices of agriculture, uh, talking um, about different things happening in our industry. So be sure to check that out at theglobalagnetwork.com, and be sure to look us up on Facebook, on Twitter, and on Instagram. Just search for Ag News Daily, and we'll be there. With that, Delaney, should we let the people go? Let's let them go. Let's let them go.